0: Everybody and Welcome to the Cane and Rince Podcast, Volume 5, Issue 226. You can, as we always like to say, play along with the show, as many of you tell us that you do these days, which is wonderful. And the next five podcasts scheduled for Cane and Rinse, Volume 5, are The Legend of Zelda, Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons. Following that, it'll be the rearranged podcast Ori and the Blind Forest. After that, Plants vs. Zombies. Then we'll make some crazy money with Crazy Taxi, and then we return to the world of Link and Zelda in The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. As we always say, do head to canandrince.com for articles, features, the occasional review, links to our busy, intelligent and friendly forum, our Facebook page, which is full of gaming news, and our YouTube channel, which features quick rinse videos and other nuggets. And if you do enjoy what we do, the many hours of podcasting fun we provide and you want to feel good about yourself inside, uh, we have a Patreon which you can contribute, say, a dollar a month to or whatever you feel is right. And that goes towards our ongoing running of the show uh, and is incredibly gratefully received. We also have a store at Spreadshirt.co.uk where you can buy really, really nice decent uh, t-shirts and bags and uh, each one of those that gets bought we get sent like a couple of quid something like that and it all really helps with hosting fees and microphones and software and all that sort of thing and ultimately hopefully even some more exciting plans so as i always say it is very gratefully received we also would love you to check out our other podcast which is now weekly so every time there's a cane and rinse there's also a sound of play on a wednesday in which we feature uh, music from video games from throughout the decades. We also have uh, guest panellists and sometimes uh, composer guests on there. You can review and rate and subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on TuneIn. And if you have a different podcasting platform that you'd like to use and we're not there, please let us know. So joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue of the podcast, it's Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Ryan Heyman. Tidy, and increasingly regular irregular panelist Simon Cole. Hello, hello. Right, so Nino Cooney, or literally two of country, um, but more logically the uh, the translation would be uh, well second country, but that's generally. Translated to another world or another land, something like that. That's what Nino Kuni means, basically. Um, so, before we talk about the game that begat the game we're going to talk about, uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, the, the just for completion's sake, there were a couple of spin offs. Uh, around the same time as the first Nino Kuni came out, there was a mobile game called Hotroit Stories. I think that's how you say it, um, which was uh, a prequel to the DS and therefore Mm. also the PS3 game uh, for mobile December 2010. That came out, so presumably either just before or at exactly the same time as the original DS game. Um, Also to mention the digital CCG that arrived in May 2012 called Nino Kuni Daibuken Monsters. Um, And again, I don't believe that arrived anywhere outside of Japan. I don't know whether the fervor for such things is... Uh, such that people would have made it available somehow on other systems or emulation with a translation, but I think that sort of thing is probably beyond uh many um but yes, so on to uh the first release of Nino Kuni, unfortunately, we have some couple of bits of correspondence about this. So, uh this was Nino Kuni uh Shikoku no Madoshi apologies for pronunciations. Now the official translation is Dominion of the Dark Jin. Um and this was yes for Nintendo DS in December 2010 and we have correspondence here from uh mutnik or Kai Fukami Taylor uh, who these days is a uh, Japanese localization specialist at Rockstar and uh better half of our j as well and she actually offers her own uh, translation from japanese of the subtitle as you'll hear so she says i was lucky enough to get the japan only ds version of this game shikaku no madushi or Nino kuni the jet black mage when i was over there last year although it rather seemed to have Targeted for kids, and that the story felt too rushed towards the end. I did enjoy it overall. Loved the lovely animation, the beautiful magic book, using those magic spells, etc. Went well over 100 hours. I don't know exactly, as it stops counting after 99 hours, 59 minutes, and 59 seconds. And there's still plenty to play with after clearing the story. And uh, Jay posted a couple of uh, photographs of the book um, that was uh, at that point not available over here, um, the original Japanese version of the book that comes with the game. Uh, we also had a post on the forum from uh, one Craig who said, I bought the DS version with the book a while back, but due to my limited Japanese, it's been relegated to my games to play when I, to improve my Japanese level. That being said, even if I never get back round to it, I won't regret my purchase. The few hours I played was inventive and fun. and Looking up the magic spells made me feel like a kid again being in Japanese probably added to the mystique of thumbing through the gorgeous book too the DS version is dirt cheap now uh, this post was a couple of years ago um, I've seen it, I think I've seen it as low as 500 yen which means you can get a lovely little spellbook full of Studio Ghibli art for the price of lunch so the PS3 version that we're mainly going to be talking about is uh, effectively a sort of HD remake uh, and an extension of the DS game there are some differences Um, there were some redrawn cutscenes. some locations were changed in their layouts. Uh, Some of uh, Shizune, or as we know him in the West, Drippy's actions and dialogue were transferred to a character that arrives later in only the PS3 game called P. Uh, The dream world that you're taken to when sleeping in inns was removed from the PS3 game. Uh, There are more possible rewards with the merit stamp card. Um and a slightly different mechanic there with levelling up Um, The fairy ground in the English PS3 game originally didn't have any fairies and was a cross between PS3's fairground and Crypt Casino in the DS version It was simply a city-like town with normal citizens and electric lights The characters were normal humans in upper-class city style for example, suits, handlebar, moustaches and dresses (laughs) Uh, In the DS version, there was an internet trade center normal to most Japanese DS games uh, in which you could trade familiars or imagines, as they were called there, with each other. Uh, That service appears to have been shut down, um, as is common for DS Wi-Fi related stuff. Uh, The DLC that was the Golden Might and the Golden Drongo was exclusive to PS3. Uh, and about half the items are different between the two games. There are some translation differences, as we mentioned. Imagines became familiars, runes became spells. Uh, The word soulmate was not in the Japanese version. Um, Some of the names seem needlessly different, such as Mark becoming Phil, Ancient Tree becoming Old Father Oak, uh, The Middle Continent became The Summerlands, uh, and Refreshing Coffee became Iced Coffee in case we couldn't work out what that meant. Uh, but some names were more drastically changed, so Babanasia or Babanasia Kingdom became Al-Mamun. However, some lines of dialogue uh, were left without changes, such as the such as the name of the fruit Babana uh, re- remaining unchanged. Uh, perhaps the most notable example of name-changing is that Goraniru Kingdom went through a complete name-change in order to force a pun about an English rhyme that wasn't in the original. I think I see the hickory hickory dickory dock or ding dong bell one of those so the uh yeah the ps3 version came out in japan in november 2011 and then a year and three months or so later it arrived in north america australia and europe so let's uh hear about when we got on board with nino kuni wrath of the white witch starting with simon yeah um when I first came
1: across the game, um, I didn't own a PS3. It was the DS version I'd seen in, I think it was either on Silicon Era or in a copy of Edge, and I loved this idea of having the book to go along with the game. And I was desperate for them to uh, localize it, which unfortunately never did. But when I found out they were going to localize the PS3 version, it was the the the, the tipping of the scales to get me um, to get me to buy a a, a, a PS PS3. Mm. Um, so I pre-ordered, obviously pre-ordered the um, Wizards Edition, which was the um, version wow. in the UK that came with uh, the book, which for me was the main thing, but it also had like a, um, a little, is it a plushie they call them, of um, yeah. uh, Drippy. Uh, oh, I'm so jealous. Now. I can't think, there might be some other bits and pieces in there, but it was all about the book really for me. Um, so yeah, got it on, uh, on launch day and um, I just hammered through it uh, and you know, I, I had positive memories of the game, but it is a while ago, so I have had to brush up on the what actually happened in the game over the last well since I found out I was going to be coming on here. Um, and yeah. it, I think probably importantly, I played with Japanese voice acting, which oh, of course, I think that was probably option, yeah. changes the experience to some degree, particularly mm. characterised with with um, mm. you know with the likes of uh, Drippy. But yeah, it was a day one purchase for me because um, I, I, I was I, I was. Obs- intrigued by the this this game that had a book that you you, you used to get spells from um i love it because i think it just gave a, 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 a an extra tactile layer to the experience which you don't often get with video games
0: now would you ordinarily describe yourself as a a jrpg fan and B a studio ghibli fan
1: uh, i'm a, a long time jrpg player f- back from sort of turn of the well turn of the decade i'm talking about end of the 80s, early 90s um, yeah. and a massive level 5 fan as well um, yeah, they sure. had a really strong start to their output, stuff like Dark Chronicle they did Dragon Quest 8, um, Rogue Galaxy which I think is probably one of their more underappreciated games and um jean dark on psp which is a, a cracking little um mm. uh, strategy rpg so i've been i'm a bit of a level five fanboy to be honest i like a lot of their stuff i like their i don't think they always execute things brilliantly which we'll probably uh, cover in this um episode but i i like the sort of themes they uh, they try and cover and their sort of attitude towards video games in general, and around the time when I saw the first saw the DS version, I was getting into the studio um, Ghibli films. I think I I just watched um, Spirited Away and um, Ponyo, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which um, is one arguably my favourite of their films. And mm. uh, funnily enough, that was the gate of the film they'd just finished making before they agreed to do the um, uh, do work on Nino Cooney with Level Five.
0: Yeah. So I believe this was announced, um, this team-up uh, was announced to celebrate Level 5's, was it 20th T- anniversary I think or? it's 10th.
2: 10th, 10th yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, Ryan, how about you? See, I had been excited for this one for a long time beforehand i had been kind of really cued in um based on the all the trailers and stuff that i've been seeing and it looked like something that i would really be into because i was a you know a reasonably big fan of the studio ghibli stuff beforehand and i I dabbled in the occasional jrpg from time to time um but i i didn't pick this up at launch just because i knew that i just wasn't gonna have the time (laughs) to get around to it at that point in my life and so it ended up you know being quite a while and i have the greatest hits version so it must have been until whatever kind of second printing that was uh and it got it for a pretty heavily discounted price if i remember correctly from like best buy or something and it just kind of sat on the shelf for a while um i did get around to uh to putting it into the playstation um a while back probably when i was uh, starting my graduate school and it just um I, I think I was working really hard at that point in my life. Like I constantly had stuff going and I was always really tired. And so every time I played it, I would like fall asleep, which doesn't really reflect like, you know, I'm not trying to criticize the game for being boring or anything. It was just like, I didn't have the, the mental stability to hold up to like a JRPG at that point in my life. And so I had yeah. to end up shelving it again. And then I, uh, I um, picked up where I left off and finished it up for uh, for the, the, the show probably within the last, uh, probably around December or January, somewhere around there. Excellent.
0: Yeah, I bought bought this digitally. I can't really remember why, I just wanted it then um, and paid the full $49.99 or whatever it was to download it on the day of release. Um, And uh, yeah, it's since been available incredibly cheaply. It's very often in sales. for. I think I've seen it on to download as little as £6, and I'm sure you can get the physical version for not much more than that. But I got uh, I got at least, I think, 50 to 60 hours out of it. Um, I was playing it in the year when I was uh, writing video game reviews professionally. So I was reviewing sort of four, five, six games a week, plus doing cane and rinse, plus finding time somehow to play this game. So it took me um, something, six, seven months to get through it. Um, but I kept coming back to it and uh, and complete it i did at some point during uh, 2013 um yeah and i'll let you know my thoughts josh you finished this recently
3: yes um so i was when this game was first announced i was initially very very excited for it because um St- studio ghibli's work is is really important to me um Hayao Miyazaki is one of my favourite filmmakers. Um, I I consider Princess Mononoke to be um, somewhat of a masterpiece. I, I just I really love that film, and Joe Hisashi as well as a composer. I think is is up there among my favourite. Um, my favorite uh, composers uh, of all time, to be frank, um, and I think his music and the animation of that studio just works so well together. So the idea of getting to play a game that kind of utilizes that aesthetic sensibility was really, really exciting. Um, but I didn't end up picking this up day one um, because Uh, I forget what game it was that came out around that time, but a game came out that was getting a lot of... I think it was Fire Emblem Awakening, actually... Um, now mm, that yeah. I think about it, um, yeah, I it think, would have ended up then. Yeah, and um, I think I ended up picking up that instead of Nino Kuni, just simply because the praise for Fire Emblem Awakening was really hard to avoid at the time. It was quite overwhelming, whereas Nino Kuni was kind of getting, yeah, it's good um, reviews rather than like this is a must-have. Um, So I decided, you know what, I'm going to wait until this comes down in price uh, and then pick it up at a later date. And I did. Um, I think it went down to something like 15 quid, which is about the price. I thought, Okay, yeah, this is, you know, this is an impulse buy now. And it just sat on my shelf for for years. I, I played the beginning of it and thought, yeah, this is good. And then I put it back on the shelf and for whatever reason it just never re-entered my PS3 for a long, long time. And it became one of those games where actually, you know, this podcast became really useful for me combating my backlog. Because I I, I just got to the point where I was like, I am never, ever going to complete this game unless there is some kind of deadline looming over me that Mm. forces me to... Um, forces me to complete it so it, in a lot of ways I'm really glad that um, you know we as a podcast have decided to to do this issue because it means that I finally completed this game and I don't I honestly don't think I would have done um, otherwise um, yeah um, I mean I'm going to save my thoughts for the body of the podcast but um, I, I ended up being quite surprised by how I felt about this game
0: mm-hmm yeah, I meant to say uh, my relationship with JRPGs is that I have bought many, 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 started fewer, uh, completed even fewer, but I do like the ones that I like, and, yeah, I've completed uh, a number of them in my time, but not nearly as many as I've started or acquired. Um, and as for Studio Ghibli, uh, I've seen the yeah the greater amount of their work, um, and I'm, I'm definitely a fan uh I own a couple. I own Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. I've seen others at the cinema. I saw Ponyo at the cinema. So, yeah, um, and I'm, I'm a fan of animation in general, um, especially when it's... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily... I, I don't go in for the, the sort of the anime serials so much, the sort of action stuff, but um, but stuff like this, the sort of sweeping cinematic, I suppose even you could say some of it is sort of more family-oriented in a way. Yeah. Um, or, or more skewed towards adults. I, I, I am a big fan. Uh, Ryan, how about you and JRPGs and Ghibli?
2: Um, I mean, I, I mentioned a little bit of my history with Ghibli, but I, I have played a few JRPGs in my time, like Final Fantasy VI a long time ago and Breath of Fire IV, and it's always been a seri- a genre that I've enjoyed reasonably. But you know, n- nothing that was like. Uh, absolute top of my list like i'm not the like the jrpg guru in in any stretch
0: okay that's uh it's good context so the director is uh kentaro Motomura and his cv is uh pretty spectacular uh along with the games that simon mentioned there working on uh, rogue galaxy and uh, jean d'arc he's also got credits on uh dragon quest 8 the uh the ps2 uh soon coming to 3ds and installment in that series he was monster and effects director on that one Uh, he also did some graphic design for dance dance revolution disney dancing museum uh he worked on the castlevania the 1999 one which i think must be the n64 one um did some programming on that as well uh, and was the uh uh, game designer on jean d'arc Um, So, yeah, uh, and most recently is credited as senior producer on Bloodborne, which will be our uh, 250th issue of the podcast. Um, The writer uh, similarly uh, starred career, lots of uh, those games again that we've already mentioned, Rogue Galaxy, Dragon Quest 8, Dark Cloud, Dark Chronicles Jeanne d'Arc, um, but also um, I started off on the Overblood games back in the 90s on the PS1, um, but more recently uh, the Professor Layton games um, has been one of the main uh, designers on that, probably the lead designer in fact um and a uh, creative producer on the recent yoke well relatively recent in this country anyway yokai watch uh and yeah lots of other interesting stuff there as well the reviews that josh mentioned yeah it was uh it was reviewed everywhere the the Gamerankings.com uh, aggregator has sixty four reviews listed and the average score came out at eighty five 97%, so just shy of 86%, which is probably pretty decent for a JRPG in 2013. Um, they tend to score slightly lower, I'd say, overall these days. Um, and the sales well, physical sales according to VG charts uh, were around 0. 0.6 million, so 590,000 in America, 500,000 in Europe, and um, relatively small. 210,000 in Japan, uh, just under a quarter of a million the rest of the world. So one and a half million overall, just over. Um, but I don't know. I, I doubt, as I say, I, I suspect that's only physical sales. So if you add the digital sales in, especially since it's been heavily discounted, I imagine you're looking at considerably more than that. Um, whether it's profitable or not, uh, I have no idea. Uh, we'll issue a spoiler alert for this one because it's obviously it's a story based game um we're not going to go through every uh, aspect of the scenario beat by beat but certainly things will be uh, revealed and given away and discussed uh freely so let's start with the presentation um i, I guess we can even think about the sort of outside of the the, the game stuff because i think mm. um we've got a picture of the wizard's edition here and yeah it's um like Simon said, I think beyond the plushie and the book, that that's pretty much it. Plus your your DLC golden familiars, um, but it comes in a gorgeous box, I think, with a gorgeous logo and the book. Um, I've I've only seen the Japanese version up close. I saw Kai's copy, um, and I haven't seen the like the the building quality, the stitch quality of the plushie. But um, it looks like yeah, I'm I'm now kind of wishing I'd bought that because. It looks like a nice thing to own. Uh, is that something? Is that how you feel about it at this point, Simon?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, I think it, the quality of the book is pretty high for you know your um, you know your, your special edition. I think they notoriously can be a bit cheap and cheerful. Um, can be. I, I don't have. I'm not particularly an authority on plushies, um, <laughs> uh, so I couldn't really comment on on Drippy. But he's really just stayed in the box. Um, what?
0: Yeah Cruel uh, Now I've got a son as well I can't have him on display Put him up uh, high on a shelf
2: Yeah
0: You've got to keep him out of the reach of, uh, of the children these are,
2: not, these are not toys These are plushies Collectibles You know, Mr Drippy The character spent a fair amount of the game as a doll And so I'm kind of uh, disappointed they didn't model him After the uh, in-game doll appearance of Drippy I agree Yeah, yeah yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. But the book, the book itself is, um, I think, quite, yeah, it looks quite high incredible. quality yeah I really like mm. it I'm quite looking forward to it. so I'm gonna keep it for when my son's old enough to play with me and I think he'll probably get quite a lot out of that
0: yeah we've got some uh, correspondence pertaining to that scenario later on actually um but yeah just everything about the game to me felt lush and uh mm. you know sumptuous from you know right from the um letting it run on the on the cross media bar on the on the ps3 to booting it up Um, It just felt really slick and polished and all those, you know, all those adjectives Um, and and, you know, exciting because you're greeted by some, uh, you know, some uh, intriguing uh, montages of cutscenes and that uh, Joe Hisaishi score. And yeah, it's it's a game that I found sort of thrilling just to
2: to boot up and think about playing even before I actually Mm. (laughs) got started. That's kind of what pulled me into the game in the first place—is just seeing the, just the quality of the world around you. I had previously played Eternal Sonata on the Xbox 360. It's the uh, yeah. uh, JRPG that takes place within the dream of a dying Chopin, I believe it was. Yes, and really? um, and this game had a lot of like real like aesthetic similarities. And my, you know, positive experiences with that one, and then also positive experiences with the Pokemon series in the back, in the past, which I've played so many of, mm. um, you know, this game kind of falls squarely in the middle of those two. And so it, it felt real, uh, just nice and familiar to jump into this type of world. It kind of reminded me of my Eternal Sonata days and how happy I was back then. And so, yeah, brought back good memories of that. Josh, how about I, you? I,
3: I was really impressed by how... How well they captured the Ghibli aesthetic. Um, there's no monster or creature in this game that feels like out of place in a in a Princess Mononoke or My Neighbor Totoro or uh, Spirited Away type film. Like it, they they all feel really consistent to that very specific artistic style, and and it was a joy to see all that stuff. And you know, on on top of that. I think the environments really capture that painterly mm. style that the Ghiblies have. So the character models are very kind of um, anime esque, but the the backdrops always feel like um, Turner paintings or something like that. I'm um, sorry, I'm being quite uh, pretentious possibly here, but like A bit they. Flowery? They, but but, yeah, but <laughs> they do have that kind of watercolor, you know, aesthetic in, in the. The more distant, um, you know, um, buildings and more distant environments, and I, I really, I really appreciated that kind of attention to detail uh, in trying to capture, you know, what Ghibli has done on on the big screen for years and years. It wasn't, it didn't feel like, um, you know, a fan or something like that trying to replicate the aesthetic. It felt like people who really understood it.
1: Yeah, I think they had um, a, a, one of the Ghibli artists doing all the storyboards, didn't they, for the cutscenes, which helped sort of infuse that, you know, the essence of the, the sort of the, the, the Ghibli aesthetic.
3: Um. Even so, even so, it's 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 just impressive that every inch of this game feels consistent to that aesthetic. I I would expect mm. that from the cutscenes, um, you know, and and all of that, but the fact that there's there's no point where i feel like that's somebody else's um you know artistic touch that feels like um a, an influence from somewhere else it all feels really consistent
2: it felt a bit like walking through a museum though or like riding through a disney ride or something like i love how how lush the world is and how well it um it just kind of evokes that kind of painterly thing like josh was talking about but I wanted more interaction with the world and I always felt like I was really constrained to very narrow pathways as I got to, you know, spend some time and look around and stuff, which is wonderful. And, you know, I don't want to, don't want to knock at points for that because it is really great to just sit there and just look at these environments. But, um, you know, maybe I'm, I'm spoiled by Skyward Sword, which was a little bit more kind of interactive and I can climb on things and I can look at things from all different angles, but I, I did feel a little boxed in, in Nino Kuni at various points.
0: Yeah, I think um something we'll probably talk about even more when we go on to the sort of mechanics um of the game and, and progression throughout the game, but this is an old fashioned game. As in, you know, it doesn't it doesn't particularly try to and I, I don't think there was any intention on, on the part of the developers to try to break the mould when it comes to JRPGs. And I think I mean that that's kind of a whole topic unto itself. Uh, you know, why the JRPG evolved like it has, why developers are so um, reticent to go outside the constraints of that what you know are they because you know we'll we'll hear later on i think from josh and some of our, our feedback about how actually you know the things that jrpgs do are uh you know increasingly less fun to a lot of people um and yet um i think developers are scared to change them too much because the Hardcore fan base, perhaps mostly in Japan but definitely also across the world, would be resistant.
1: I think one of the problems with Nino Kuni is that it exists in a post Persona world, post Persona 3 and 4 world, and a post Xenoblade Chronicles world, which are games that have done a lot to sort of like soften the the harder edges of the genre. Um, I know a lot of my frustrations with this game came about because i was quite fresh off the back of um xenoblade chronicles um which does go a long way to really make it a more palatable genre for you know more modern gamer i guess
0: and an even longer game in terms of hours i think i believe uh depending on how you play it and what you do but um i know xenoblade chronicles can kind of top out at 100 plus hours whereas nino cooney you're probably not going to be looking at more than 50 to 60 yeah um but it's about it's about the progress through those hours. But we will we will come on to that more. I think what I, what I was getting at here was Ryan's talk about the the lack of interactivity in in the world, both both on the world map and in areas in towns. You know, anyone who's I'm sure you know many people listening to this podcast will have played some JRPGs. Then you might be a hardcore fan. You might have only ever played Final Fantasy VII. But to be honest, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Like when you're walking on the overworld, there's not much you can do. This is a game that has the relatively modern innovation, although actually, games started doing this a long time ago. Really, of having the monsters visible on the overworld. It's not just a case of um, all uh, fights with it invisible. Uh, monsters Mm -hmm. Um, and you can actually I suppose one sort of uh, innovation as such and again I don't think this was the first game that did it but it's something that's a more recent uh, development is that enemies who you're over leveled for will run away from you on the world map and things like that but but yeah when I'm when I'm talking about talking about it being old-fashioned I'm thinking that as spectacular as I think the overworld is both to look at and to listen to um and we'll come on to the music in full of course uh it doesn't really feel any different to traverse to how final fantasy sixes or sevens world did um back in the 90s or perhaps even some of the even earlier enix games of the 80s late 80s maybe
2: well there's not a lot of uh, playfulness to the way that you interact with the world which i, I think is a little bit of a missed opportunity since the main characters are kind of a cast of children like it would be fun to have some way to and this might be you know asking a lot more of the uh, world designers but um it is some some mischief that they can find themselves in or something like that he does gain the ability to jump at some point if you save up yeah. enough reward points but jump that doesn't after really that. do anything yeah. at all yeah
0: yeah um i mean even yeah the fact that you you can peg it and run and jump about the game world um, with with your main character Oliver. I think added something for me. It, d- it didn't mm-hmm. just feel like um, you were just a, a token on the game world, like in some pre you know earlier games. It felt yeah. like you were still your character and you were still in in the world. Um, very polite
2: it, children, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> you obey all <laughs> well, of the rules at all times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well that's true. Let, let's sort of let's talk about that the the scenario and the and the setting. Um because th- the way I think about this is having having uh, seen a number but not every one of Jubilee's films is that the sort of uh although this deals with some sort of yeah, fairly emotionally depthy subject matter, um this is more the Ponyo end of things than the Princess Mononoke end of things in that this is a this is this is a pretty friendly world albeit with some with some scary things in it um, mm-hmm. and the characters are very young they're not sort of adolescents or pre prepubescents, like in something like Spirited Away um, and like I'm fine with that I was playing this as a as a 41 year old man and the whole sense of whimsy and childlike wonder is actually the thing that I perhaps enjoyed most about the game but i think some of the criticisms i've read and this is just my interpretation of what other people have said my perception is that when they saw that ghibli were doing uh an rpg with level 5 was that they wanted something a little bit more a, a bit more depthy mm. a bit more a bit more multifaceted and a mm. bit more substantial in terms of intellectual rigor if not uh, it, you know, uh, for me, it definitely has the emotional side of things uh, tapped quite well. You know, it's got a few bits which I fi- found genuinely touching. I mean, the the main character's mum dies very early on, you know, and he feels responsible for it. And it's about him um, kind of uh, finding peace and redemption with grief um, by curing the world of its ills which is you know it's a pretty grand thing um and he goes off on a, on a fairly classic hero's journey although uh the ending of the ps3 version slightly undermines that as we'll come to um but yeah so how did other people feel about the the story and the characters
3: i, I think ultimately uh this actually ended up being my biggest problem with nino cooney because I felt like there was a lot of wasted potential here. I I love the setup. I think um, the um, starting the adventure with um, Oliver's mother dying and that kind of being the the catalyst that starts the adventure feels very very um ghibli it is for me it was clearly evoking my neighbor totoro where that film is mm-hmm. very i mean on its surface is about you know two kids discovering a big cuddly bear owl but is actually about two children kind of coming to terms with their parents mortality and the possibility of their mother dying while they're still children and and like having that kind of contrast of um, high fantasy and and you know joyous colors and and really colorful characters you know um, alongside a rather you know darker subtext I felt right yes these guys understand what Ghibli's all about um, but it felt like as the the game got into you know the second act of the story as it were it really lost its way thematically and and i think that's that's something that um all the 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 ghibli films share is that they really i mean the the strong in i mean my favorites in in terms of the ghibli canon i i think they all have a strong thematic focus that they keep the story keeps coming back to and i think um Nino Cooney has one at the beginning and has one at the end, but the middle kind of loses its way. And I feel like a lot of the characters, except for Drippy, uh, are largely forgettable. Um, Oliver's, um, you know, charming enough; he's he's likable. But apart from his mother dying, I, I can't really tell you much about him other than he's very optimistic and and up for anything um and his companions um i i feel like i barely got to know them as people drippy's the only one who really stands out as a personality that's just you know really re- memorable and
2: mm. and
3: uh, and the only one that feels iconic out of the cast of this game for me
1: um yeah i i pretty much agree with um josh to be honest i thought at the beginning um it's like yeah this is it's, it's all about this child's sort of catharsis through his you know his imagination um how he's going to deal with the, the death of his death, death of his mother um but then it kind of pretty much turned into it almost like a reskinned dragon quest game which isn't necessarily a bad thing mm-hmm. but you kind of once you'd got 10-15 hours into it you kind of forgot about why you were doing what you were doing mm. um uh, um but you know i, I thought it was uh, the, the opening is pretty strong um uh, and what josh is saying about oliver i, I think he's pretty much he's an archetypal jrpg uh, protagonist he's kind of you know he's got a strong sense of right and wrong uh and he's like josh says he's up for anything um and I mean, the only other character apart from Drippy I really remember is Swain, who mm-hmm. plays kind of the. Um, he's like a scoundrel, he's your Han Solo character, although maybe he wouldn't go that far. Um, he reminds me a little of um, yeah, Janssen from Lost Odyssey, um, uh, which is a Sakaguchi game from Miss Walker. Um, he's kind of like. He, he's, the, he's, he's the the scoundrel who's a bit of a scumbag at the beginning, but ends up being actually, he's alright. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have to say, I agree with Josh.
0: Ryan, how do you feel?
2: Yeah, um, I do echo a lot of uh, Josh's feelings on this as well. I think he hit that pretty spot on. Um, I think that it particularly does a good job of grounding it in the parallel worlds motif. Like, I like how you can jump between uh, Motorville, is that it, and um, and then the the fantasy world because it, uh, it it has it has a sense that it is kind of all in Oliver's mind, and I like that. Um, and also just the idea that he can return to his own home and sleep in his own bed anytime is kind of comforting to me as the player, even, um, it just, it is a really nice, I guess, backdrop for this, you know, high fantasy kind of child imagination type of, uh, setting. Um, and also it gave it the opportunity to have tell a few kind of smaller stories about, Mostly about familiar relationships and about um, like an abusive father and having to kind of combat his inner demons and, uh, you know, kind of reawaken him to the importance of his family and all these little scenarios. And you got to see how uh, broken relationships really affect children in, you know, various different settings. And so I think there's a lot of really um, strong stuff in there. Uh, I I think that Oliver is a little. A little boring but that's okay because he's just kind of meant to be the one who drippy bounces off of most of the time um is really the star of the show he's he's such a charming and, and lovable little fella um and then his uh his his companions um are a little one note for my liking but they they don't detriment the game in any way but they don't really like push things forward uh, in, in substantial ways, either. Uh, I think there was <laughs> one scene that I just had a real weird reaction to and tell me if I'm crazy or something. But uh, in the the city that they go to, where everybody kind of lives in a boat, or is it, like dock city, um, they're all forced to I guess adhere to the dress standards of wearing swimsuits yeah. and there's a there's yeah. like a long pan down like the body of the female companion who's like nine years old and it's like who's this for <laughs> I don't yeah weird uh yeah that's it's yeah, um I don't I, did,
0: I didn't I, I thought this was maybe just a reveal of their yeah, maybe I was being naive. Um I, I didn't I, I didn't get overall I didn't get the vibe that it was a it was a lecherous sort of <laughs> game. Um but it wouldn't be without precedent if those things were,
2: were happening, that's for sure. Yeah, just, I just talk one about distinct the, moment. The rest of the game is pretty pretty tame. Pretty tame, yeah.
0: Um yeah, so I, I always like to watch uh animation not only Japanese but from wherever it comes from and and live action films actually as well in their original languages no dubs even even on animation Um, but I've got to admit I did play this game even though the option was there and I'd kind of forgotten Um, Japanese language option and very much appreciated um, Bandai Namco who distributed this outside of Japan. They put that in there or left that in there, whichever way you look at it, while also doing a, uh, you know, a proper localization in terms of voice actors with lots of, um, you know, actual you know, proper equity card-holding um, talented actors. Interestingly, I know Adam Wilson, who played Oliver, has uh, since gone on, um, having only done one short film before Nino Cooney. Uh, he's now appeared as a regular in both Mr Selfridge and uh, Broadchurch. So he's, uh, he's you know, he, w- he wasn't just a one-hit wonder, this kid. Um, but I think as much as anything, uh, the reason I stuck with the English language acting was probably Stephen Rodry's, um drippy... Uh, and I did definitely have a listen. Um, I understand in the Japanese version, um, the same character whose name I said earlier, who I've forgotten, uh, uh, Shizune, um, has a what you'd I suppose, suppose describe as a yokel voice. He has a, like a deep, uh, rich country accent. So I suppose the the most obvious to if they put him as a as a straight English choice, he probably would have been um, Somerset or. Maybe East Anglia or something like that but they went for this um, this uh, sort of rich Welsh accent and obviously there are lots of Welsh accents uh, you know some people have just said he's got a Welsh accent now I'm not expert enough to say exactly which part of Wales he's from but I know having I spent quite a lot of time in Wales as a kid and the 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 accents in the different towns are, are remarkably markedly different from north to south um but I think it was as much his Stephen Rodgery's performance that kept me that made me stick with the english language um dub uh because i think i would have missed i think i would have missed drippy um yeah so uh simon so you've heard you've you've heard the 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 localization but you stuck you you were you were the purist and stuck with the japanese
1: yeah right? I, I like um I'd really enjoyed uh, the Dragon Quest uh, Nine localization, um, which obviously oh, yeah. didn't, didn't have voice acting, but um, it was really, really good job that used a lot of um, uh, British regional accents. Uh, and then, um, obviously, I played, like I said before, I played Xenoblade Chronicles, and um, they took a sort of a similar path. But mm. I found it so grating that I quickly changed back to the Japanese, and I just thought, yeah. I can't face that again. I've got to stick to the Japanese. And I tend to do that. I know it's the it's the sort of like the you know the the anime nerds way, which I don't really class myself as, but it just I like that authenticity. Plus, having played a lot of voice acted jrpgs through the sort of tail end of the 90s and early 2000s where they didn't have the budget to employ particularly good um, no that's right yeah uh, actors and actresses have, have kind of been sort of psychologically harmed by the <laughs> by yeah. some of the some of the performances that i've experienced yeah absolutely um, so we, we
0: had we had mixed response to we did the the last story um on this podcast some time ago and, and yeah, you know, we had a mixed response to the, to the localization on that.
1: Yeah, but yeah. I, I did actually go and, uh, and uh, uh, listen to quite a lot of the cutscenes with, uh, Drippy and in English because, um, I read an article by, uh, Chris Spann of the, um, now defunct recycle bin, uh, which talked about Drippy bringing back fond memories of his grandfather. Uh, and this, and the nostalgia, of the game, gave him for his childhood so I, 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 it piqued my interest so I went back and actually listened to a lot of drippys uh, cutscenes and um, if I could if I could kind of like um, put the Welsh voice acting drippy into the into the Japanese <laughs> voiced version that would be the yeah. perfect version for me but uh, yeah it's uh, it's um uh, it's not anything against the the, the, the English voice acting and it's sure, say it's more my um, my um, kind of difficult history with english voice acting in,
0: in this genre was that article actually by chris ban oh yeah it was i i i read it thinking he just shared it with us um yeah so this is uh, it, it is uh, nino kuni a personal reflection on uh, arcadianrhythms.com um yeah an absolutely delightful and heartwarming um tale of somebody playing nino kuni but with the added Uh, joy for him of feeling like his mentor companion character in the game was a sort of um, uh, kawaii reincarnation of his late grandfather who also had a a, you know strong Welsh accent Um, yeah I thoroughly recommend you seek that that article out because not only does it talk about his personal experience but it also uh, captures um, I think some of the positive feelings about the Nino Cooney experience that I had, uh, as well about the, the, you know, the childlike sense of wonder and all that sort of yeah. thing. Um, so yeah, def- definitely recommend that. Um, yeah. So, uh, Josh, I reckon you're somebody who would be subs, not dubs normally. Um, but which did you, which did you choose for this?
3: I, I went for dub big, be- just because, um, I had seen clips of, uh, drippy, um, before mm. playing the game and I was just it he, he's such a funny character I can't I feel like I kinda cannot overstate how much charm um drippy adds to the game overall and I think he is a, a, a really is like a triumph of localization i I mm. think um not not just drippy in fact I think all of the fairies that you encounter in this game. Um, are are really well written, really funny, and and the voice acting is really on point because I can imagine a version of Nino Cooney where they came up with the idea of having all the fairies be Welsh, and then you know half arse it and just hire some American you know voice actors <laughs> to wow. try to attempt yeah. um, you know Welsh accents and like you know having listened to the tracer accent in the recent uh overwatch game um it felt like ah this is kind of an example of how it could have gone um mm-hmm. if if um they hadn't gone all out but like the stand-up set um you know on the on the island where all the fairies live it's it's genuinely really funny um i remember having um you know a conversation with ryan quite a while ago about that stand-up set and ryan was mentioning that like they were actually breaking all the rules of comedy yet it still worked um it was still really funny um and and just the quality of the writing um and i feel like because drippy is so so well written and and so well voice acted, it makes me feel more positively about the story overall than maybe I should do. Um, because I feel like everything outside of him is maybe less interesting. Um, uh, I, I would say that, um, there are some other performances, I think, that are, are close to the quality of Drippy's. I actually really like Shadar's vocal performance in English. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I don't, you know, the, uh, up until the very end, he's pretty much a two-dimensional villain uh, until they suddenly rush out some explanation and backstory for him, but... Um, but like that, that voice is really intimidating, and and I think the, the voice actor does a really good job of making that character feel scary, um, yeah. and and yeah, by and large, I think the localization in, in Nino Cooney is really really impressive, and I think it's among the the strongest I've seen in a in a JRPG.
0: Yeah, credit to Brian Prothero for for the Shadar performance, Um, a veteran actor born in 1944. Um, He's done lots of video games, uh, Castlevania stuff, Final Fantasy stuff. He's on Soma most recently, but also has appeared in, uh, you know, lots of TV from uh, populist stuff um, and also, uh, you know, a Shakespearean actor. So that makes
2: that makes a lot of sense.
0: Ryan, um, it's dubs subs. Any preference?
2: Yeah, I was um, I was dubs. You know, I, I think for Studio Ghibli stuff, like I I actually kind of like using their dubbed versions because they obviously put so much effort into it, and they do such they a do. good job of yeah. hiring good actors and and making sure that these roles translate in in spirit and in you know letter to. The English language versions, and so uh, you know, I, I don't feel guilty at all for for not subbing those movies or this game in particular. And to uh, to go back to that uh, that stand up comedy bit that uh, Josh was talking about, that was my favorite scene in the game. Um, I, I love you know just the context surrounding it of the fairy village, which is wonderful already. And um, but that, that that show is like legitimately funny, and I've done a lot of uh, of comedy work throughout you know my many many years now just you know on the side for fun and one of the things that uh, you know like Josh was saying it breaks the rules of comedy and that's what was so kind of entertaining to me watching it is that You know, you have two performers up there and in comedy, you kind of have the rule that you're supposed to like, yes, and anything that's said to you, you're supposed to agree with the premise and then add something to it. And during the entire show, they're just stepping on each other's feet and just like knowing everything, like saying no to everything and shutting every suggestion that the other person makes down. And the other performer is just so like on top of his game that he twists it back around and says like, all right, then I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go off and I'll come back tomorrow then. And it's the most kind of benign setup of just like shopping in a weapon store, but it has the feeling of such like real improv and such real trust between the, uh, between the comedians um, that I, it makes me think that it wasn't written down beforehand that this has to have been improv to be that snappy and that, fast and that, um, kind of natural sounding. Um, but just the fact that, you know, you have performers who have so much trust that even if the other person shuts down their premise, that they're able to roll with it and recover and not be upset with the other person for not playing along. I, it was just a, a real triumph of, uh, of weird, little comedy bitch, which is not something that I was expecting from, you know, just the middle of this game out of nowhere. Mm.
0: But again, I would say, I think um, what Josh was saying that outside of, you know, the, the core characters and even there, you know, maybe outside of Drippy, a lot of the people you, you met along yeah. the way didn't really stick into mind too much. I mean, I, I have fondness for King Tom because he's a big cat and I love cats. <laughs> um, but a lot of the other, you know, the people you came past, I have, you know, memories of uh, a large cow a uh, female cow and uh, a few other, you know, various rulers of various areas. Um, often these characters were the broken hearted who you had to um, give them some of your joy that you've gathered into your locket. I believe it was the mechanic. It's mm-hmm. been it's been a couple of years for me. Um, three years nearly. Uh, but again, like the yeah, beyond, you know, ev- everyone just a figure of speech a lot of people seem to talk about Mr. Drippy and, and curiously on that, um, pleasingly, uh, a lot of Welsh people that I've spoken to about it have been really pleased with the representation rather <laughs> than finding it like reductive or offensive in mm. some way. Like, I mean, it, you know, it, it could have, it could have been d- handled so that it was somehow, you know, n- not, not done in a, in a classy way, but, um, but it seems that it went down well with everybody. But yeah, um, there aren't too many other characters in the game, including the the final final uh, antagonist, who you know whose name's actually in the title, um, who really stuck with me in any meaningful way.
2: And I say one thing about the voice acting is that it, the the voice acted cutscenes are really um, really wonderful and and very vibrant and you know full of life, but. It, <sighs> I kind of, I mean, obviously I wish that every line in the game was voice acted, but you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. that's asking a little bit too much, but I wish that for the lines that weren't voice acted, they at least did like a little, like a, like a vocal something like they do in, uh, I don't remember if Persona does that, or I've seen it in some, uh, Danganronpa I think does that, where you just get like a little bit of a something to express just like this is what the character sounds like this is a little bit of the emotion that they're working with right now and yeah I, i just i didn't care for the completely silent scenes sure
3: i I think I would have preferred them if they were completely silent um because what we actually get is that scrolling noise when the dialogue comes <laughs> up on screen where it's like and it's just it drew it drove me up the wall at certain points a speed too. up option there there is, it? is a speed up option, but i I would like to be able to just read the text and kind of you know soak it mm. all in but mm. that noise was was it was actually irritating for me and and I do yeah. agree with Ryan that um I I would have much preferred like Zelda does this as well mm, um yeah, yeah. Persona does it Fire Emblem yeah. does it um yeah. there are actually quite a few games that do it where they just have a stock noise to <laughs> express <laughs> Yeah, just to express the emotion that that character's feeling at that point in time. And mm. and that really it does help. Like I think yeah. especially in games like Persona and and Fire Emblem where there is a lot of text to read, having that little kind of you know that choice in sound design just to kind of bring you into the moment a little bit more does help you you know soak in the text a bit more instead of that noise that makes me feel like i'm reading a shopping list at times Mm um yeah we will come on to the gameplay folks but uh i did also want to say
0: about um something that I've, i've read commented on a few places is that the um the Studio Ghibli stuff is uh, often said to be front-loaded in this game. Now, I don't actually know what the total running time of the uh, the Ghibli animated or style animated cutscenes are, but it's very short. Now, there's, a, there's YouTube compilations of all the cutscenes in the game, but mm. that includes all the in-engine stuff, and that comes up to a full kind of movie length. That's pretty much two hours. Um, but the actual the brief bits of, you know, classic, full quality, cel-shaded, traditional animation are very... I think it probably doesn't total to more than a couple of minutes, maybe. Um, were people expecting more? I would have liked to have seen more, but
1: I think, as we said earlier on, the the, the sort of Ghibli-esque sort of tone and aesthetic is fairly consistent throughout the rest of the game, mm-hmm. so mm. it didn't bother me too much, other, you know... No one's going to turn down more Studio Ghibli-style cutscenes, are they? But I I, I wouldn't say it overly disappointed me.
3: I, I think being very aware of just how time-consuming and expensive 2D animation actually is, um, mm. I wasn't too bothered that there was as little as there was, because... As as Simon said, and as you know, I said at the beginning of the show, they they do such a good job of capturing that aesthetic, and and honestly, like you know, five minutes seems like very little to you know us, but like to to actually Studio Ghibli, that's a lot of man hours. Um, Certainly, and yeah. uh, I I I do, uh, and and it's not like the you know the cutscenes that are there are kind of phoned in. I think the cutscenes that are there are of the quality of their feature films. Mm. And um I, I really appreciated what was there and glad that they contributed what they could.
2: I, one I thing that the, oh, sorry. Um, I, I think one of the things about the the main story of the game is kind of kind of moving past the um past the death of Ollie's mom. And that means, to some extent, kind of moving away from the like comfortable space of home and familiarity and that kind of motherliness um, into unfamiliar territory. And so, in that sense, the the game does kind of follow that arc. That you start the game in this kind of very lush ding dong dell, and mm. um, these the cities where there's a lot of smiling faces around you and people that you feel safe around and more kind of becomes moving out into the wilderness and out into the world. And so in that sense, the, um, you know, perhaps the lessening of the cutscenes puts more of the storytelling onto the world and the world itself. Um, yeah. and particularly kind of the hostile aspects of it kind of fill in the, um, kind of fill in the storytelling Aspect because I think especially once you get the uh, dragon and the the airship and have a lot more mobility and ability to explore you know every little last bit of this world like that becomes you know, what primarily grounds you into into this experience rather than the uh, rather than the character interactions. And you have
0: of course there just highlighted another way in which this game is so you know utterly fundamentally traditional you get a dragon and an airship to travel the (laughs) game game world map in later in the game and yes you visit um some you know you visit a hot deserty town and you visit a cold wintry place and you know it it ticks all those boxes as well but i have to say that i still remember the the i don't know just the, the the color and the art really selling the the different areas to me, mm, yeah, um, yeah. the the snowy the snowy villagey town is just properly Christmas mm. magical, mm. Um, and the the desert town felt hot, um, but in a nice you know in a nice way, not in a mm. not in a dangerous unpleasant way, but in a you know glorious sunny way, and the 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 shadows of the clouds going over the world map and all this stuff, mm, um, yeah. just it's yeah powerful atmosphere to me in 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 this very simple archetypal way. And um, one thing that certainly isn't skimped on, in my opinion, uh, would be the OST uh, composed by Joe Hisaishi and performed entirely, I think, by the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra. I don't think there's any bits that are chip tunes or anything, are there? I uh, don't think so. Um, and and I, yeah, that, there's a good there's a good amount of this music. Obviously, it loops. The nature of it is that you know, if you're if you're in a certain area for a while, you you'll hear it come round again, but the world map theme is uh, is like four minutes long or something like that. I think so. So it takes a while. And some of these pieces, uh, I've been listening back through to the soundtrack, getting in the mood for this podcast. And Mister Drippy's theme has just been playing over and over in head, <laughs> but it's one. It's a pleasurable earworm that I don't mind having. Um, and the main theme and the song and everything, all this sweeping, majestic stuff. Um, a- again, it's very archetypal. There's nothing particularly challenging about it. It's just gloriously uh, sort of, you know, pristinely put together and, and performed, hmm. in my opinion.
3: Yeah, I, I think th- the soundtrack in uh, soundtrack in general is really great. I, I would say, however, I think this is Joe Hisashi playing it rather safe in that sure. the music's very good. But if we're, you know, judging it on a curve... Uh, like Princess Mononoke soundtrack um Nausicaä um of the Valley of the Wind those soundtracks mm-hmm. are uh for me that they're masterpieces I like I can listen to those soundtracks like albums they're just they're so perfectly formed and um I, I think this is if we judge it like if we're judging it compared to the majority of you know um JRPG soundtracks that came out around the time I think Nino Kuni is definitely um, would rank among you know my favourites of of that era, but I think um, the
0: safeness of it reflects both the 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 story side of the game, the Ghibli stuff, um, and also the the safeness of the you know the the mechanics of the game. I, I think it would have been odd if there had been um, sort of particularly challenging tracks, but maybe there could have been some more sort of I, uh, awkward yeah.
3: discordant stuff for the bad guys and things like that. I, I think I think I. I do agree with your point there actually because I'm thinking about the um, uh, My Neighbor Totoro soundtrack Mm. and actually um, this soundtrack shares a lot in common Mm. with that soundtrack and I think having something as dark and unsettling as, say, the, the Demon God um, track from the Princess Mononoke <laughs> yeah. soundtrack would just tonally be completely off. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I do agree with that. I, I just I think this is a master doing a good job rather than his best job, basically, is what I'm saying. It's actually interesting that this game's a certificate
0: 12 um, and I guess that is because some of the the darker scarier elements and and the you know the the mortality of of the character and, and that sort of um, the character's mother but thinking about it I think like Ponyo which I said I mean that is the one of the the, the youngest skewed Ghibli's that was a you isn't it I mean that was a used yeah. to film even that's got some slightly
1: Darker edges in it, yeah. or d- darker than a lot of western True, but it's not animations. Mononoke
0: with you know with with gore and uh, and you know adult end stuff like like some of the the ghibli's have, or even you know um, yeah. Spirited Away. Sort of somewhere in the middle, isn't it? So. Yeah,
1: there's there's no um, decapitations and arms no, being cut right. off. <laughs> no, No, <laughs> uh, But um, I, I I with the soundtrack, I having you know played a lot of these games, I I wouldn't say it's one of the most memorable. But um, there are a few pieces that really stuck in my head. I've, I found the um, you know the fairy grounds music. Yeah. Um, that was an earworm for ages. I, it's, I've got, I'm a re- I've got a real soft spot for um, sort of wistful pipes <laughs> and these kind mm-hmm. of things. So I, that was in my head for absolutely ages. Um, and the world map music, which I think is arguably the single most important piece of music in a jrpg soundtrack is you spend excellent. a lot of time yeah, yeah. You spend a lot and of time it's really it. important because there's nothing worse than one of those that that jars uh,
0: yeah or loops too quickly
1: yeah mm. yeah but um yeah i thought it was um i thought it was a solid soundtrack but i just you know when i think of like the, the classics over the years I, it's not as memorable as those you know i'm, I'm talking about your chrono triggers and final fantasy sixes and um things like that
0: the game then the actual game uh <laughs> one curious thing that i wanted to mention um is th- i'd forgotten this until i was uh, doing some research because i i played it on normal and i stuck with it on normal but this game actually has an easy option um and that easy option remains available throughout the game now i understand that it doesn't take anything away from the game other than smooths your progress so you need you know fewer XP basically, and the monsters don't put up as much as a fight. um did anyone take the easy option?
2: no I don't remember honestly
3: um I'm only just discovering that I could have lowered it to easy at any point, and I'm very angry at myself for <laughs> not <about laughs> taking that option. <laughs> Well, in a
0: way, yeah, I'm quite glad you didn't, but then maybe that would have changed your overall feeling if it had really... I think it or You know, from what I've read, again, I didn't, I didn't try it. Um, I was sort of vaguely thinking about having another playthrough at some point with, you know, Japanese speech on and just play it through on easy and give it another go. But I think it turns it into more of a kind of interactive story where you have to spend far less time, you know, micromanaging your familiars and things. But then there's Sounds an good argument... Me. Well... It could be, or it could actually (laughs) take away the few mechanical elements that were actually worth investing time and and thought into and turn it into even more of a kind of, you know, just a pure expressing exercise. Yeah, (laughs) I I,
3: I was going to say, actually, you know, having thought about it i think actually i'm glad i didn't discover this because well, let's get into it yeah yeah uh, i mean i uh, do you want me to start us off or go for it. it yeah i i mean i i liked the combat initially um because i did feel there was a lot of depth to be mined there um i like having the um uh, the, the characters with you know different uh, um Celestial kind of symbols associated with them yeah. to kind of indicate the rock paper scissors nature of the the combat and kind mm-hmm. of swapping out familiars uh, based on who you're fighting. That was really that was really fun, but it got to the point like e- like every area got to the point where. Um, I felt like I didn't really need to engage with the uh, familiar's abilities And I could just tap X over and over again Until everyone was dead And the only mm. time where I really needed to engage with the depth of the combat Was with the boss battles um, and, and That's I think, because you weren't engaging with the normal
0: monsters Really? Okay
3: Yeah that's, yeah. how,
0: that's basically how JRPGs work, in my experience. Is if you don't pay any attention while you're, well, if you just do the minimum to get through the on overworld fights uh, and and the regular story-based fights, you will come a cropper at the bosses. Every JRPG I I can remember playing is it, uh, Simon. You might you might correct me on this, but th- as I understand it, this is how they work. Like the normally engaging with the combat mechanics to a, to a greater degree than you need to throughout most of the game will see you set up for the bosses if you do the minimum on
3: the way to the bosses then when you get to the bosses you'll come across oh I, i'm sorry i should have clarified i i didn't mean to say that um there were a couple of bosses that i struggled with what i meant to say was hmm. that for the majority of the game i felt like i the the depth of the combat was something I didn't need to engage with like I didn't I didn't actively avoid combat all the time it's yeah just no I, was, the, like, like, I got yeah. I got your meaning I think but it's
0: the the idea that and, and as I say I'm speaking as I'm no kind of JRPG expert or guru or super fan at all but when I do play through these games um, the thing that I try to do is uh, is to engage with the stuff that even if you feel like you don't need to, it's about actually specking out your party, your familiars, however it works. This game has a sort of, um, you know, a uh, time active battle like Grandia or something like that. Um, and, and I, I always feel like the more that you pay attention to all the little elements, even if, as I say, even if you don't necessarily need to, like the, the way I, the way I got through this game, let's put it this way. And I didn't, I, I had a couple of you know difficulty spikes because that's what these games have in them. They're quite deliberate, and you know these games, whether you like this design or not, they do insist that you uh, make sure you're of a sufficient level. Now, I found that with this game, as long as I did all the side quests that were available at any particular time, I was adequately leveled. And I think again that is generally how these games work. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a, there was there wasn't too much time. When I was purely grinding, purely just going out onto the map and finding enemies to fight and just levelling up, there was, uh, there was always a reason to do it. So for me, the primary motivation was filling out my, you know, my, my uh, check card, whatever it was called, getting all the quests in all the shops that were available at any one time in all the towns and following all of those through and completing all of those and also always going into whichever new armoury shop there was and targeting equipping everyone with the highest level items mm. as long as i did that as long as i was leveled enough and had enough money to get all that together i found the bosses were achievable as long as i used sort of sensible strategies
3: yeah and i i i think i did all that stuff as well okay. um it uh, what, what i meant to say was um i think i my point wasn't really made clear is that The only time I felt like I was enjoying the combat, I should have said, was the boss battles. Um, That's when it felt Mm. like, um, you know, taking advantage of um, putting everyone in defense, everyone in all attack, Mm. um, taking advantage of weaknesses and, and all of that stuff yeah. that's when that stuff felt useful. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, whereas with the rest of the game it felt like just filler until I got to a boss, if that makes sense. Um and it was great for like, you know, capturing, you know, new familiars and stuff like that. But I would have liked that level of depth um that I got from the, the boss battles in more of the kind of average encounter you have. Sure. Um, I felt too powerful for most of the game. Oh, okay, right. Um, honestly, and it was mm. only when I faced maybe like the um, Shadar and then the White Witch at the end where I yeah. felt like I was actually up against something that was maybe beyond my my yeah. weight class. And um, late-game bosses are notoriously uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. designed
0: to be stumbling
3: blocks in these games, by and, and large. And... <sighs> And to be honest, I do actually. I really enjoy the way this game handles um, side quests. Um, mm. I I I like the uh, the concept of um, getting these you know these stamps on your card and then using that to unlock abilities that kind of indirectly benefit you. They're not like Perks, um Yeah, they're they're yeah. not like increasing your attack power or anything like that you still have to engage with the combat in order to to you know level up your party and all of that stuff but just having an ability that absorbs all of the the orbs in a map automatically at the end of at the end of the battle is just really useful and and you know that Made me want to engage with the side quests, whereas in um, other JRPGs, I might have just ignored it. Um, and yeah, I and I think kind of rooting some of the side quests in just kind of characters and and trying to you know uh, heal their broken hearts rather than making every single side quest like a combat encounter was clever also. um and and it felt more true to the game's um style um and and tone but yeah i i just i just wish the combat was deep outside of the boss battles i just felt it it became a bit button mashy the more powerful i got
0: Mm -hmm. i see ryan how how did you get on with this you you seem to make positive noises when i said that you'd actually be quite happy just to play the story and hit the X button
2: for 50 hours, yeah, <laughs> or, not, or less maybe. Yeah, yeah, I really did not care for the combat in this game. Um, I, I kind of, I wish it was just entirely turn-based. I know that the DS version was, and, and it always kind of made me jealous, like, oh, I'd love to, because I feel like there's a lot of um, kind of experimentation and stuff that I can do with uh, the different abilities and stuff that I just never really had the Uh, The bravery to try out because you always had, you know, monsters running after you and a time limit that was counting down and, you know, just everything being this hybrid of real time and, you know, uh, cool down timers and stuff just didn't really work for me and my specific sensibilities. Um, I feel like the. I ended up relying on some things that I don't know if they were intended by the uh the creators uh like whenever an enemy was winding up for a physical attack like I wouldn't defend I would just switch back to uh I'd take my familiar out of the fight and switch back to Oliver which would remove them from the line of the attack which I kind of felt like was kind of a cheating exploit but at the same time like if i could do it and it saved me from taking damage then you know i'm all for that um the all attack and all block didn't work as well as i wanted them to like you need a you need a fair amount of time before the attack actually lands to uh input that command before they'll actually respond and it doesn't cause my guy to block as well which i you know if i'm telling everybody else to block then i'm probably also wanting to Block. And so you have to thumb through the menu even more to get to that option. Um, and then eventually the game kind of becomes, uh, or at least the boss encounters, perhaps unfairly dependent upon Oliver's use of the uh, Star and some of his yeah. more powerful spells. And so mm. towards the end of the game, it became, you know, keep my friends from doing anything stupid and getting themselves killed while spamming the morn star and drinking coffee um which isn't a hugely engaging curve and i know that you could you could switch to your friends and kind of take control of them for a little while but their ai wasn't really up to the standard that i wanted it to be and so they would end up wasting a whole bunch of their magic on lesser enemies and so when we got to you know the the real tough enemies then uh, or the bosses even then they'd be all out of out of magic and that got a little annoying and so there's you know a few little annoyances throughout that just kept me from ever really connecting with it and then the fact that the uh, the bosses that come after the false ending uh, just really hiked up the difficulty a whole lot I just uh, was not Mm. not getting on with that at all
0: yeah um the thing that i perhaps found the most um interesting like as i say in in essence the the combat didn't feel that much different to me to something like grandia which is you know a game that was already 15 years old at this point um but i think the the sort of the pokemon type uh sub uh game of uh collecting you know trying to Trying to gather up every enemy in the game, got to catch them all and um, mm. and evolve them and all that sort of thing um, now i've I found that it what happened to me was exactly the same as always happens with um, Pokemon, which is I always end up with massively leveled like three monsters and none of the others with any levels at all <laughs> but I really got into I really got attached to those monsters and um and i and I found. You know, between the three characters and the monsters that I used, the three or four different monsters I used, you know, sometimes I would bring different ones in when there were weaknesses to other elements or or that sort of thing. Um, But I got, yeah, I got pretty good at, you know... um, I felt like I had a good build for everyone, and I and I kind of got a good rhythm about swapping between the characters and and um, which monsters to get to do what stuff, and um, and I think for some players like people who don't try to play everything and weren't also reviewing games professionally and also reviewing games for a podcast, um, there's definitely uh, a you know a sort of overarching collector up to be had here um, to sort of expand your interest in the game and. I wanted to share this post from uh, from the forum, Damocles Six nine three to talk about actually farming both XP and also seeking out some of these rarer creatures. I think this post, although it's effectively a bit of a strategy guide, is actually a good um, illustration that there is more kind of game in Nino Kuni than some people may find. Damocles says there is a great spot to farm when you get the ship and the world map opens up to the north of the Summerlands is a series of islands. The small one in the southeast of the group, Ugly Duckling Isle, is the only place where the incredibly rare and almost impossible to capture Toko spawns. As well as being one of the most Totoro-esque or Totoro-esque looking of the familiars, you get around 6000 XP, which that's dependent on your level, I think, for beating one. They are incredibly skittish and will always flee from you on the world map and will also take every opportunity to flee from battle too. So make sure you concentrate on the Toko as soon as the battle starts. FYI, that isle appears to be the only place that might spawn if you wish to have both final iterations of that familiar. Next good farming point is accessible once you have Tengri. To the northwest of Hamelin is a town called Padida, and the path on the world map that leads down from Padida is the only place the next evolution of Toko appears, Tokotoko. This one is as rare as Toko, but the area is bigger, so you'll stumble upon a fair few after a while. Same deal as with Toko, but this time worth huge XP. Tokotoko was the only one of the Toko family I was able to catch. Apparently, there is a 2% chance of catching one in battle. Finally, for those who are far enough, Toko Colds spawn every now and then in the Ivory Tower. Can't remember how much XP you get for beating one, but it's a lot. Also, a good tip for all these areas, once you've made a loop of an area, it's worth casting gateway twice to reset the spawns. So I just found that really because I didn't, you know, I didn't personally get, although I did do a little bit of hunting and gathering and capturing and seeking, um, see that sort of stuff is the stuff that I know a lot of people will go absolutely crazy for. Um, and yeah, it makes to me, it makes the game sound more intriguing than perhaps my experience was with it. If you know <laughs> what I mean?
2: I did like the capturing of familiars and I, I like that you kind of have to uh, impress them in battle and then they'll kind of of their own accord uh, join you. Um, which is kind of neat. It's yeah. a little bit more kind of like hospitable than Pokemon, where you're just picking them out of the wild and capturing them I against know. their will as they struggle to escape the Pokeball. Tiny right? spheres, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think that the a few decisions in the, uh, the way that the collection aspect of it works, um, it takes a long time to evolve any of them and actually i got a fair way into the game before i even learned that you could evolve these monsters because it just requires so much xp um kind of like fire emblem once you evolve them they reset to level one which makes them a little useless for a while but eventually that gets to be a good decision but you know if there's one that you were relying on then that could be a bit of a devastating blow at that point um but feeding them sweets was so cute and cool (laughs) yeah definitely um, but also, I I was a little bit annoyed because I was kind of like you know half-heartedly like eh maybe I'll catch them all. But um, once you get to that final evolutionary branch, then you could choose one of two evolutions, which means to catch yeah. everybody, you have to catch two of each creature. And right uh, yeah, it's just that's a lot of that's uh, a lot of time and a lot of luck.
1: Yeah, I think it's you know with these games, I think we're all i won't say getting on a bit. I know Josh is quite a bit younger than at least and he's um, getting on a bit. Yeah. now, he's catching up. Yeah, but with, the, with JRPGs, it's like it doesn't make you think. Oh, I wish I was at school and had all the, had, you know summer holiday just to play this one game for six weeks. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's you just don't have the time anymore. Um, I think it's great with it. You know, a game like this, you you can you can bomb through this in about forty hours, I think. Yeah, um, probably. But if you want, you can spend you know probably probably hundred plus if you want collecting all the familiars and leveling mm. them up. You know, th- it's a lot of content. I, th-
3: I think my my counter to that was even though this game you know you can bomb through it in about forty hours, I felt like those forty hours felt longer than the a hundred plus hours I've spent in The Witcher Three. Um, because I, I I think the pacing in Nino Kuni is really prob- uh, problematic. There are mm. just long sections where it is just you wading through enemy after enemy after enemy, and not feeling like you're making a huge amount of progress. And um and and I, and I think this is less a problem with Nino Kuni and more a problem with the stage I am at my uh, in my life and 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 just. You know, kind of discovering um, the way I feel about JRPGs in general now that I didn't feel when I was a teenager or younger than that is that I I do feel like there are a lot of moments where this game is kind of wasting my time. Um, the, uh, I mean, a perfect example of this was in Hamlin when you first go there, and the game asks you to go all the way down to the bottom of Hamlin. And then there's a short conversation, and then it says, "Okay, go all the way to the top of Hamlin again." And I was like, <laughs> "What? What was the point of this?" And it's <laughs> and and in actuality, it's sh- such a short amount of time, but ha- just being asked to do that felt like why? Why did I even go down there then? Why couldn't I have done what needed to be done yeah. up here and then gone down? And th- that mm. kind of like that lack of economy that lack of um just being able to um get things done in in a fashion that felt um that felt like i was progressing all the time and felt like i was making making progress all the time um it it just it felt really frustrating and and despite the game being quite short i think you know there are a lot of JRPG. I've played for a Persona, JRPG, yeah, Not for short a, JRPG. a game, yeah, yeah. For, on a curve. Um, yeah. uh, Nino Kuni is quite short for, in the genre, um, and I've played games like Persona Three and uh, and Persona uh, Persona Four, which are, are double the length of this. But ultimately, I felt Nino Kuni dragged a lot more than than those games. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but uh, I did. Feel the length of this game at certain points. I think it depends on the way you know
0: the way you're playing it. Obviously, you're playing it to a deadline, which uh, you know it's one of the things that contextually we've we've talked about a lot. Obviously, it's the nature of the beast in terms of play, doing Caden Rince. We complete things because we want to be on the podcast, and we want to be on the podcast because we want to complete them. But it does add time pressure, and that's not necessarily. Uh, always the most enjoyable way to play things. I played this, as I say, through when I was extremely busy with other games, but I would just dip in now and again uh, over the p- space of six, seven, eight months, something like that. And to me, it never dragged. I was, you know, I'd, uh, I don't think. I, I was just always happy to get back to it and to be re-immersed in the world of it. So I think the way you play it plays a huge part. We should probably talk about the ending. Um I read a really interesting yeah. article somebody uh, apologies uh, s- uh, sent us a link to an article uh, Caspian com. not a site I'm familiar with um, and it has a section uh, within that blog called Game Theory not to be confused with the other things that are called Game Theory that are out there um, but this is uh, an extended post about the ending of Nino Cooney. Now, uh, I've only read this once today, but I'm going to try to summarize and if, if people can jump in and help me and, and give their own feelings about this. As I understand it, the original DS game ended when you killed the Dark Jinn or Shadar as we know him. Mm-hmm. And the ending of the game was effectively about learning that you couldn't bring your mother back after all and you had to uh, learn to live with your grief. But also uh, you've come, come to terms with the fact that uh, you've made a lot of friends, you've had a lot of adventures and the world goes on and you've, you know, you've brought a lot of happiness where before there was darkness. Now, the 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 PS3 version extends the story with this Cassiopeia character, the White Witch. Um, but this is a character who you're not even aware of, although the the player is aware of, but the characters are not aware of until after the previous final boss is finished. Then you go on this uh, tour around the world, clearing up areas that you've already been to, and as the author of this piece says, it does rather feel like it was uh, either it was either intended to be a DLC or it was tacked on purely to give owners of the DS game in Japan uh, a solid reason beyond the you know the new graphics and sound to buy the PS3 version and it ends up with a rather what the author considers to be a rather unsatisfactory ending and also unsatisfactory in that it whereas the original ending subscribes to the classic hero's journey the revised ending doesn't because it leaves the hero hanging and very literally in the case of you end up with an item which appears to be uh, some sort of all-powerful resurrection item, perhaps the intention in the writing was to give you the option, as Oliver, to resurrect your mother but never be able to go home or to return home and never be able to resurrect your
2: mother, something like that. Is that, is that about That's right? A, it's a magic spell that was kind of a forbidden spell, and it was talked about That's in right. one of the uh, one of the fables that are in the um, I don't remember the. the book. Book. I don't want to say the Grimoire of Vice because I've been playing so much Near, but the book that uh, the Wizard <laughs> Compendium or whatever. Um, but there's a story about somebody who uses this resurrection spell that um, that everything goes terribly wrong, and so it, it feels like there's a lot of foreshadowing of you know what this spell is, and then the fact that uh, uh, Cassiopeia uses this spell in the final battle to you know revive your friends, and she's already so gone, and the idea is that it's kind of this uh this monkey's paw effect that you mm. know if you use it something is it's not going to work out the way that you think it does and so um the author was just kind of positing that you know maybe resurrecting the mother and not being able to reunite with her would be an appropriately ironic ending but um yeah the fact that it feels like it both goes on too long and does not go on long enough
1: yeah, it's a, it feels a bit of a, a Frankenstein story in, in that respect. But it it worries me this thing about you having the option to resurrect your mother and not be able to go back to your your old world. Because if you think about at the beginning and this idea that it's a boy retreating into his own imagination, yeah, um, to deal with the loss of his mother. If they're saying that he's given an item and not be able to return to the real world, that's that's pretty de- pretty dark and depressing. Yeah. Um, you know that hints at something pretty sinister um, but my suspicion is probably that as Leon said this might have been just a bit of extra content to uh, entice owners in Japan to to get the, the PS3 version um, and it, but we were saying before that you know it, it does lose its way a little bit narratively as once you get past the opening um, I think they'd probably forgotten about what they were saying at the very beginning about a, a, a young boy trying to deal with his death of his mother by retreating into his imagination um, mm. because it, it it doesn't quite add up.
0: <laughs> no, and and in the end it, it rather implies, as our first bit of community co- correspondence says, that in fact they're playing the fantasy side completely straight. Like there is like that's how I mm. wanted to see it. I wanted to see it in the same way as I see you know Guill- Guillermo del um Pan's Labyrinth, which is that the fantasy is is. The protagonist fantasy to escape from the horrors of what's going on around Um, whether it be an element of psychosis or pure childlike imagination that's left to to interpretation but in this case it does seem that it pretty much by the end of the game says yep the magic's all real which uh, you know is is one way of doing it but yeah, to to an adult mind, it seems somehow slightly less satisfying than the the one which is where Santa Claus doesn't
2: exist and there is no Tooth Fairy. I don't know. Personally, I found everything that happened after the false ending to be pretty dreadful. Um, just the fact <laughs> yeah. that like you had a you had a completed arc, you know, just yeah. sitting there, and your character was about to return home, and he was saying his goodbye to his friends, and this actually, quite nice cutscene, and then it starts mm. raining ash and turns everybody in the world into zombies, which <laughs> I, what like that's I, I'm sorry, but that's that's kind of stupid i don't
3: I don't get it yeah I, uh. and and I think what frustrated me was if the white witch had that power right from the beginning. Why even bother with Shadar? Why? Why not just do that straight away? (laughs) If if it's so destructive and so powerful, then why why are you saving that as an uh, you know uh, bring you know bring out for emergencies? Just lead with that, you know. And 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 I I just felt like it it did feel really forced. Um, And I, I if if it if the white witch had just ended up being kind of this manipulator in the background and the story kind of ended with her arc unresolved and and you just you know that she's she's always there kind of looking over this kingdom and this world mm-hmm. i think that would have been effective um um and and made her feel more powerful and and made her feel more compelling as a threat rather than Okay. Right now we get to fight her. Um, yeah, I I just don't think anything involving the White Witch is was particularly well handled, except for possibly the the her backstory. I do, I do mm-hmm. find the the backstory for that character rather fascinating, and that essentially she's just imagined a a council out of thin air. Thin air um in order to entertain herself that was really interesting but (laughs) and then at the end you end up she ends up fighting with you against this yeah that 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 frustrated me because that kind of Mm. it felt like they were undermining their own Mm. you know storytelling device it's like oh no they're not real oh wait they are um it's just (laughs) it it make up your mind guys
0: Hmm. let's hear then from our community uh Ryan, perhaps we could take turns. You start with uh, Cass here from canandrince.com slash
2: forum, as always. Cass, I wonder if that's the same Cassiopeia would have some good insight into the game anyways. Uh, Cass from the (laughs) forum says, enjoyed every minute of it, loved quite a lot of it, but not without reservation. Disappointed with where the plot decided to go. I was really hoping that the entire world would turn out to be a creation of Oliver's. Following the death of his mother, the guilt causes him to hallucinate a world in which he is a powerful hero, capable of resurrecting his mother and solving complex emotional issues simply. But nah, it's Ghibli. Of course they didn't do that. The story played its fantasy elements incredibly straight, which was disappointing. Still, the game experience was fun, if a little too easy, all the way through. Thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Cass found it too easy. I suspect that Cass did everything. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Now, I put that one there because it was uh, in uh, reference to the ending. But here's where we start with the uh, less than uh, glowing appraisals with Flabio, Glenn Watts. This is the game that convinced me I no longer like the entire JRPG genre. It looks great. It sounds great. I hated playing it. I lent it to a friend years ago and I've never bothered chasing up getting it back. It does everything I dislike in JRPGs all at once. It's repetitive, it's grindy, it has weird difficulty spikes. It takes an age to get to the point of anything. I think the only JRPG I've played since and actually enjoyed was The Last Story. And I'm someone who used to adore the genre. I still think Xenogears is the game that's had the most impact and stuck with me the longest of anything I've ever played. But I don't think I could ever play it again now taste change it's like looking back at the first CDs you bought remember those and thinking i used to like that
2: torinio says i could sum up my 35 hours with nino nino kuni in the following manner 1 to 5 hours wow this looks just like a ghibli film this is amazing the character designs are great we have familiar ghibli archetypes that will be developed and the music is so good 5 to 18 hours This grinding is getting really boring. I don't understand this pseudo-Pokemon combat, and why are we still introducing gameplay mechanics? 18 to 30 hours. Wow, this game is great again. I can explore the world freely now, and it's all so pretty I had forgotten. Um, We have all these different places to go. I finally got a handle on the combat, and it's actually fun during the more challenging fights. I'm interested to see where this goes. 30 to 35 hours. Guys, you're trying too hard to sell me on this story. The game should have ended at least three hours ago. Come on, wait, was that the final boss? Oh, okay then, the world is saved, I guess. Needless to say, Nino Kuni, for me, was a game of peaks and valleys. It looks and sounds like a Ghibli movie. And that alone was worth the price of admission, but the story is very subpar, even by other JRPG standards, with a cast of cliched characters and a plot that really overstays its welcome. Gameplay wise, the game has some interesting ideas, and once you wrap your head around the mechanics, it can be very rewarding. But the seeming uh, glacial pacing of the game progresses, undercuts that, especially with the amount of grinding you have to do to get a, a good party going. While we don't think that Nino Kuni is a bad game, I find it hard to have a positive conclusion on it. There are plenty of other JRPGs with more interesting stories and fulfilling gameplay. And if you're looking for a Ghibli experience, you're much better off watching their films without having to wade through 30 hours of gameplay to get what amounts to one of their weakest works. I wish I could be more positive, but hopefully the devs took some lessons and are taking them uh, to the sequel. Yes, indeed, there is a PlayStation 4
0: sequel, Nino Kuni 2. I can't remember the subtitle off the top of my head, but it's uh, I think it's due out next year, probably. Anyway, it should look amazing. <laughs> that's, that's for certain. Gaio Pinto, uh, we're on the up here in terms of appraisals. Nino Kuni is a lavish, extravagant feast where some of the meat has been undercooked. The food looks so mouthwateringly delicious that you can't help but scarf it all down, and it tastes amazing, especially at first. But there is maybe too much food, and it takes a little too long to finish. And that undercooked meat undercuts some of what had previously been a fantastic meal. When you finished, you're still really glad that you ate, but also disappointed that the chef didn't quite pull it off because this had the potential to be the greatest meal of all time. <laughs> Extended food metaphor. Tick. Nice job. Everything about Nino Kuni's presentation is gorgeous. The collaboration with Studio Ghibli really pays off, though I feel like they front loaded the animated cutscenes. And the art style is sublime. The environments look great, and the character designs of the familiars are probably the best I've ever seen. Puss in Boats is my favourite. I think that Joe Hisaishi's soundtrack is one of the greatest ever, and is one of the main reasons this feels like a Ghibli film. Lastly, The Wizard's Compendium is the coolest and most beautiful digital book I've ever seen in a video game. These are, uh, there are elements of the gameplay that I really enjoy. Catching the different familiars is really fun, as is choosing how to level them up. I wish the side quests were a bit more involved because most of them are just fetch quests, especially the ones that require you to find the pieces of heart. But my biggest issue with the game by far is the combat. It wasn't really a problem in the normal enemy encounters, but it had me throwing my controller several times in boss fights. Ninokuni no Kuni layers so many systems onto its combat, and I think that could have worked great if it was a purely turn-based RPG, but because of its real-time elements, it was very challenging to get everybody to do what I wanted. It's such a credit to the rest of the game that I completely beat it and went on to beat the Guardian of Worlds, even though I really disliked all of the boss fights for the last 30 hours of the game. Out of all the games I've played in the last five years, Nino Kuni has evoked the most complicated feelings. I love its art direction, soundtrack and sense of style so much. I wanted so badly to stay longer in that world that I put over 70 hours into it, even though I found the combat extremely frustrating.
2: For me, Nino Kuni is both a great game and a missed opportunity. Richie Atwood. I bought this game in a PSN sale a couple of years ago and had the now notorious problems installing it on a launch model PS3. Sometime later, I was looking for a game to play with my four-year-old daughter and remembered I never got around to playing it, slowly making our way through it over several months and having a wonderful time together. She loves the characters, art, and story, although the systems are too complicated for her, so I do all the combat. She can't read yet. So I have to be a one-man voiceover cast channeling the accent of my old man to get Mr. Drippy just right. I don't think I'd have stuck with it on my own, as I wouldn't have the patience for the grind. But seeing the world they created through the eyes of my child has been a very special experience for us both. I'd recommend it for parents with young kids. Nice.
0: The Judge 625, I believe, a new correspondent... This is one of the games that makes me want to kick myself for selling my PS3. I loved every minute of this game. i had taken a break from the JRPG genre for years after Grandia 2 on my Dreamcast, but after looking at the pictures and videos on the PSN store, I bought Nino Kuni. Going in with no expectations, I was just looking for something different, and this game delivered. The art immediately pulled me in, and I would sit for 5-8 hour long sessions in this game without even realising time had slipped by. While I enjoyed the story, it never struck me as incredible, but the characters within were very memorable and full of life. The combat was also engaging, but I kept it as simple as I could and only really captured a couple of dedicated monsters to fight by my side. The casino was great and I would spend hours racking up cash in the platoon minigame. I'll never forget when 30 hours in, encountering what I thought the story was building up to be the final boss, only to find out there was another 30 hours of game ahead of me and being stoked about the prospect. All in all, a wonderful experience from a JRPG and nothing since in the genre has been able to evoke the same feelings of affection for a game from me. There you go. The words poison and meat spring to mind, along with that extended food analogy. Uh, Yeah, it's always fascinating when we get such uh, diverse opinions. And yeah, I think that's the way it's going to be for people with JRPGs, especially in the time we're in now. So, we'll see this condensed into much briefer portions now here. With our three word reviews, follow us on Twitter at Rince.
3: So, our cheese says, I gave up.
0: Glenn Watts says, gave up halfway.
2: Louis your trail. way
0: too long. David C., battles get tedious.
3: Leah Haydew, slightly anatomically <laughs> incorrect. Gaio Pinto, sumptuous,
0: beautiful.
2: Frustrating. Liam Edwards, beautiful, frustrating, excellent.
1: Alex Fusil, good Welsh accent.
0: John Lloyd, great stand-up set. Mm-hmm. Anthony Asaf, vibrant, interesting
2: design. Michael Edward, something quite special.
1: And Chris Williams says, gorgeous, heartfelt, amaze balls. I can't believe I actually mm. said amaze balls. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was so happy. <laughs> Uh, we've, we've, I know, we recently had a uh, our first X on Acid three word review, which I can't believe it's taken this long to get, and now we've got our first Amaze Balls as well. So thanks, Chris Williams. Okay, to summarise, then we'll start with Josh.
3: I really, really wanted to love Nino Cooney, and I and I think there is a lot to love about this game. I think the aesthetic is fantastic i I love the art direction and i and i think the soundtrack is pretty great even if i don't think it's joe Hisashi's best work but ultimately a lot of the the tropes of the genre kind of held the game back for me i think there were long stretches of the game that that dragged for me i felt the combat didn't fully take advantage of the depth that clearly was there but only really Came about for me during the boss fights, um, and and I think the narrative started strong and and end, sort of ended well until the second endi- uh, ending loomed its head, but the whole middle section felt really unfocused and and really didn't have a strong theme which is so much what you know I think the Ghibli um you know I think Ghibli is all about that that their films are have are really thematically strong um I, I think about you know um My Neighbor Totoro and its theme about coming to terms with mortality and uh, Princess Mononoke, which I think is, you know, one of the best examples of uh, uh, an ecological film that y- you could find out there. Um, yeah, so I-, I was kind of disappointed that the narrative ambitions weren't on par with the aesthetic ambitions. And and it this might seem like a weird comparison, but I ended up feeling similar, uh, similarly to. Um, how I felt when I came out of watching Zack Snyder's Watchman mm. where he absolutely nailed the aesthetic and the surface level stuff about what made that graphic novel so appealing, but kind of misunderstood the soul and the heart of what made that that source material so compelling. And I feel like Nino Cooney has committed a similar sin in that it understood the surface stuff, but didn't quite understand the stuff that was under the surface, and and unfortunately, that that's kind of a big part of the appeal of Ghibli for me. So yeah, I, I think it if if you're really really into the JRPG JRPG genre, it probably is worth giving a go. But I think I I personally have grown a bit tired of the tropes of the genre, and and I. I ended up feeling quite disappointed by the game. Fair enough. So as I said earlier,
0: uh, I played this at a time when I was absolutely snowed under by games, but I played this one uh, entirely for my own pleasure. Um, I occasionally play a JRPG. As I say, I buy a lot, play fewer, complete even fewer. Um, But this is one that I played all the way to the end, over 50 plus hours, over the course of six or seven months, which uh, seemed like a nice way to do it. Um, there were only a couple of times where I was away from it for so long where I came back and was like, how did, how does the combat even work? And all that sort of thing. Um, I was soon right back into it. Um, and yeah, I have enormously fond memories of my time with the game. Uh, It does. Uh, if you consider the, the tropes of the genre, uh, a cliche in itself, uh, the JRPG to be pitfalls then it falls into all of those absolutely it has grinding it has rep- repetition it has odd difficulty spikes um, I think the the criticisms about the sort of level of standard of, of Ghibli in this uh, probably fair having you know seen some of Ghibli's most you know highly acclaimed films but as I say it was for me it was about a sense of childlike fantasy in a simply splendid extravagant world um full of life and color and joy and a bit of sadness too um and if yeah if one was looking for a traditional jrpg to play around now in 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 time i would certainly say that this one would be worth trying if you if you have if if you enjoy that sort of childlike sense of wonder and, and the sort of feeling of safety of both the the story and the genre that it's in. Um, but certainly some people will find, as Josh did, as Glenn did, that um, maybe the JRPG is no longer for them. Uh, and it's probably not a genre
2: I'd want to play all the time, if I'm honest. Ryan? I have very similar feelings towards this game that I do to uh, the Legend of Zelda: The Skyward Sword, which is that the the moments that shine the brightest are just absolutely brilliant, and there are some things in there that are uh, just stand out and um, you know worth everybody experiencing. But these games really needed an editor. <laughs> like there was a lot in uh, Nino Kuni that uh, I, I feel could have used a second pass or um just a lot of little annoyances that end up adding up to be um just something that i was kind of happy to be done with when i finished uh and that it's not helped at all by the fact that the or at least my opinion that the weakest content is loaded like right at the very end of the game in uh in a massive difficulty spike and in a section, which uh, according like following the arc of the story doesn't even make sense to be there in the first place. And so it all feels very unnecessary past the point of, uh, of defeating the main villain or the, the villain that you had been kind of following the adventures of throughout the entire event or the entire game. Um, But I think there's a lot of really strong stuff in it as well. I think the fact that it shipped with the, a Wizard's Compendium in the special edition is maybe its strongest attribute um, total. Like I, I love the idea of thumbing through a book, and especially one as well put together and um, really thoughtfully constructed as the Wizard's Compendium, um, kind of as a uh, as a like a companion to playing through the game. And even though I didn't have the special edition, like I just. Uh, I just had the the standard Greatest Hits edition of the game. Um, you know, we still got the the in-game variation of that, which is kind of just like scrolling through PDFs. And so, you know, it's not ideal, but I, I think that it's a lot more engaging than just reading through menus or just reading through, you know, text dumps of lore. It really brings me into that experience a lot more and makes me feel like a little bit of a wizard myself, which I think is wonderful. Um, and Anything that has a skeleton casino is going to score some <laughs> points in my book because that, that's brilliant. I love that kind of thing. Um, How women, many
0: games have a skeleton casino?
2: Uh, probably more than I can think of off the top of my head, actually. Uh, <laughs> right to at Caden and Rince with all the skeleton casinos you can remember from <laughs> games. I want at least 12 by the next week. Um but yeah, it's just a few oddities, a few things that felt a little sloppy. Like, I'm pretty sure I skipped most of the snake temple by walking past a magical barrier and then waiting for it to wear off before unlocking a chest that I don't think I was supposed to be able to access, which means that I can oh. go straight to the boss. And that was just, you know, and so there's a few things like that that I feel like, I maybe accidentally stumbled into taking advantage of a couple systems that probably would have been caught in QA, or um, and and then just in general the story arc not really playing to what I wanted to see from this game, and it's um, a few kind of grindy bits that kept it from being like a hearty thumbs up recommendation. So um, I'd say if you have the time which is uh quite a big (sighs) ask but if you have the time there are some things in there that are definitely worth experiencing but um when you get to the uh when you get to the when you fight shadar when you beat him and the cutscene plays that feels like the end of the game. Right when clouds start rolling in, just turn the system off, and you'll have a wonderful completed story. Walk away. You've beaten it. You have my permission to tell all your friends that you've beaten the game because that's where that's where the story ended for me, and that's where I think that it uh, the strongest ending lied. So um, yeah, play to that point and then be done with it. And then they'll check your trophies and go, "Hey, <laughs> all
0: right." Uh, let's conclude with Simon.
1: Yeah, I think mechanically and to some degree narratively, it's got f- its fair share of flaws. But I think if you're willing to look past those, there is quite a lot to like about the game. I mean, it's absolutely stunning visually. I'd probably say personally, it's my favourite looking PS3 game after uh, probably Valkyria Chronicles and the um, HD remake of Akami. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it touches on the, these themes of dealing with loss as a child and seeing it through a child's eyes which yeah it doesn't quite pull off um, consistently throughout the whole of the game but um, I, I, I like I liked how it dealt with that at the very beginning, um, I loved experimenting with familiars even though maybe the, the, the combat didn't always demand a lot of me in that respect, it was f- through my own uh, volition that I was experimenting. Um and I like that they did now the, the the Ghibli aesthetic throughout the game. Um but you know, I'd say if you're yeah, you know, maybe a hardcore fan of the genre, um and you your standards are fairly high, or if you're um someone who doesn't have the patience for, you know, a hoary old style JRPG, you should probably proceed with caution. Um but if you're A level five fanboy like me, or or um, a Studio Ghibli fan who's um, curious about seeing um, sort of the 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 Ghibli uh, mystique transferred into uh, into the video game uh, sphere, then I'd probably definitely recommend at least dipping your toe in because, especially given how cheap it is these days. Um, Yeah, that's it really. Um, You know, I think I'm conscious that maybe I've, I've nitpicked it a bit throughout this recording that's what we do that's yeah i mean (laughs) uh, um uh, but my my memories of it are fairly positive despite its flaws i think has a lot of you know a lot of charm which you could say is style over substance but um you know at the end of the day i came away feeling like i'd uh, i'd enjoyed it so yeah you know try it go on it's
0: cheap nice Okay, so it just remains for me Leon to thank Josh, Ryan and Simon and to tell you that next time in issue 227 we have some more Japanese role playing games but Nintendo and Capcom style with The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons until then